Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Gabrielle Dolan, who is the author of Real Communication, How to Be You and Lead True. A highly sought-after keynote speaker, educator, and author, Gabrielle has worked with thousands of high-profile leaders from around the world and helped countless of Australia's ASX top 50 companies and multinationals to humanise their communications. Accenture, Ernst Young, Visa, Uber, Australia Post, National Australia Bank, Amazon, and the Red Cross, just to name-drop a few. She holds a master's degree in management and leadership from Swinburne University, an associate diploma in education and training from the University of Melbourne, and is a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School of Executive Education in both the art and practice of leadership development and women and power leadership in a new world. Gabrielle is also the best-selling author of Ignite, Real Leadership, Real Talk, Real Results, which was published in 2015 and reached the top five on Australia's best-selling business books. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore Gabrielle's book in detail, and as always, I start off by asking Gabrielle why did she decide to write this book? We speak about the four trends that are influencing how effective we are when communicating to others. We discuss the communication conundrum and the impact of technology on how we communicate. And I finish the interview by asking Gabrielle about owning your genius and knowing what's real for others. So keep listening, and as always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Gabrielle Dolan, author of Real Communication. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Gabrielle, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy that you've decided to be a part of the show so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Who is Gabrielle Dolan? Who is Gabrielle Dolan? Wow, that's a big open question. Um, Look, I guess in a nutshell, I'm an author and speaker and trainer on storytelling. So I I teach business leaders how to communicate more effectively through storytelling. So really into real communication and authentic leadership. Um, my, my back, I've been doing this for about 15 years. And before that, I was a senior manager at National Australia Bank. So I worked at NAB for about 17 years, held a lot of, started in technology with working on mainframe computer operators, which really shows my age now because I'm not even sure they exist anymore. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's sort of my my um, background in a nutshell. Okay. And so we're, we're here today to talk about uh, your new book, Real Communication, How to Be You and Lead True. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, it's it was interesting. I, I was coming across, I know there was two things that I was noticing. One was the absolute increase of jargon and acronyms. And I, I was just, you know, and that's one of the things I'm really passionate about is to stop this default language of business around jargon and acronyms. And I, But I noticed that there'd seem to be a, a bit more and maybe because I'm passionate about it, I did notice it, but I, I noticed that was going on. I also um, 
there was a lot of research coming out that we are in a decline of trust. So there was this, you know, we're not we're not sure who to trust or what to trust. People are speaking in riddles with jargon and acronyms. And more and more, I kept saying, um, you know, we need real communication. That people need to speak in a way that's real and genuine. And I I tended to keep following that with, and we need that now more than ever. And after I sort of you know had a few conversations with people about why do we need it now more than ever, I I started to have really strong thoughts on why that was the case. So as I do sometimes where I think, you know, this is because of this, this and this. And then the next thing I tend to say is I should write a book on this. And so that's what happens. As soon as you say I should write a book on this, um, you think, you know, why not? Because I think it's really important. Um, And I think uh, what I hope the book does is gives people permission I guess not only permission to communicate in a way that's real and and lead in a way that's more authentic but actually provides them with some reasons why they should do it and some really practical tips okay well I'd like to uh, kick it off by reading a bit of an excerpt if I can and it's actually from the introduction and it, it really resonated with me when I read it I know from personal experience how hard it is to work for and work with leaders who talk rubbish and never do what they say they do. I don't think I'm on my own here. We are crying out for leaders who are authentic and speak in a way that is real. Why? Times have changed and continue to change at a rapid rate. It's not slowing down. With this change comes a whole new set of phrases, acronyms and jargons that is confusing and at times overwhelming. We're also more cynical of the world at large and hence more demanding of what we expect from companies and leaders we work for. So I suppose that resonated with me because this idea of leaders who talk rubbish and uh, I think we've all come across a few of them. So, so what can we do about it? What can we do about it? Um, it, so I actually had someone uh, ask me a question about my my manager does this, so what can I do about him? And I guess the short answer to that is, you know, gift him a copy of the book. But but this book, <laughs> the longer answer, I guess, is the book is about really how, what you can do about it. So it's almost, I see people go, you know, I know someone that works with and, and they talk jargon all the time. Um, they, they seem, they don't seem to be authentic. And so my advice is, well, don't be like that person. Um, and don't think that that's just because this person's more senior than you, or just because you look around and you see some of your, you know, the senior leaders acting this way, don't think that for a second that that is the only, that you have to act in that way to achieve success. And so um, a lot of people that have read this book, you know, have sort of said, you know, I just started out in, in corporate, in a corporate job and I see all these people talking jargon and, and I felt that that's what I had to do. And and they said, your book has given me mission to say, you know, I don't have to follow that norm. I don't have to be that norm that I can communicate in a way that's more genuine. So um, I think what we can do is, is it's in our control, but we certainly don't want to feel pressured that, that just because we know some people that do this, we, we act this way. In fact, we should go, I know people do this and it doesn't work for me and I find it disengaging. So I'm actually going to deliberately not do, do it that way. Okay. So I was uh, keen to explore the, the, the book in some depth and uh, wanted to start by asking you about these four worldwide trends. 
that you believe are influencing how effective we are when we communicate? Are you able to give the listeners a, a bit of a high-level overview of what those four trends are? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and these are, you know, these are the four trends that I certainly see from my experience. And one is what I briefly talked on about, which is which is perhaps the main reason for the book, and that is this trend of a decline in trust. So Edelman um, produced this report once a year. Um, they're a global company, and they they look at the levels of trust across business, across government, across media. Um, in all, across the world, so in all these different countries, and they've been doing it for 18 years, which, you know, which is, I guess, not a long time, but it's long enough to, for, you know, for us to get these results. And what they, what it showed last year in their 2018 result, when I was researching for the book, that they had experienced the biggest decline in trust that they've ever seen. Um, the 2019 results have come out and I think it's slightly come up, but the reality is we, we're in a decline of trust. They actually uh, titled it the battle for trust. And what that means is um, we, you know, we, we, there's things like alternative facts and fake news. You know, you even got to look at the Australian with the Royal Commissions, you know, the institutions that we actually for generations had a strong level of trust in, um, we've found out that that trust has been abused. So, you know, there's been no bigger fall from grace in in, the, in regards to trust than the local bank manager and the local priest. So, we, you know, we, there is this lack of trust going on. So that's certainly the one trend that I talk about. The other one is that the expectations of employees have evolved. Now, I know there's a lot of um, talk about millennials, but they do want to be led differently and they want to be communicated differently. So, and I think even though the millennials are driving this change, I think all our expectations have evolved. I mean, I think, you know, when, you know, you and I started work, you you probably just assumed you would be doing, you know, pretty boring jobs for the first decade of your life and stuff and and that you would only be told things you needed to know and and now I think we expect something different and what we're seeing is you know people walking in the door in their first job expect something different so expectations have evolved around um, with employees and we need to respond to that so um, the leaders who who are still clinging on to, you know, you can't please millennials and they want it and they want it all. It was like, well, that's just the reality. So if your position is leading them and managing them and communicating to them, you need to evolve with them. And then the other the other trend I see is we talked about the rise of jargon. So I'm absolutely seeing this rise of jargon. Um, technology, I think, is leading to it. I mean, you know, you look at something like the agile movement and there's a whole new language that comes with agile with sprints and squads and scrums and everything. And and also perhaps led by technology is acronyms. Now, now acronyms are, are nothing new. We've always had acronyms. But what I'm seeing is it's like this, we've got an addiction to acronyms and the unnecessary use of acronyms. So I think all those four things are leading to a point that we, we need to be more conscious of communicating in a way that's real, that's more real. So that's that's the four trends I'm seeing, which all point to why com- real communication is needed now more than ever. In the work that you're doing with your client base, are you actually seeing that these uh companies and organizations are recognizing these sort of trends 
I don't think they're recognising them. I think they're probably recognising evolving expectations. So a lot of my clients, the larger clients, um, you know, they all do employee engagement and and they measure those type of things. And I think there's a realisation that they need to communicate more differently to engage their employees and to lead more differently. So I think that is certainly something that would not be a surprise to them. I think um, this battle of battle of truth is probably a bit of a surprise for them. What I do find, though, when I point out to them the consequences of using jargon and and how ineffective acronyms are, I think even though they know they perhaps overuse them, uh, that becomes a real surprise to them where, you know, I just don't think they're aware of the consequences of jargon and acronyms in communication because they think and and what we've been told that um, acronyms example are a really efficient way to communicate and they're they're absolutely not an efficient way to communicate Um, I often point out that when we use acronyms we're actually being quite lazy because we're putting all the onus on the other person to do the interpretation and even that itself helps, like that comes as a bit of a surprise to people to go, you know, I've never thought about it that way. And that is exactly what it's doing. So in exploring the, your view about the trust, you talk in the book about the cost of losing trust and why it's so hard to rebuild. What, what can the listeners do to make sure that they're not losing trust? And if they do, what can they do to rebuild it? Yeah, look, I think, you know, a lot, a loss of trust comes always from the decisions and the actions that we take. So, you know, a lot of companies will have um, values around integrity and respect and doing the right thing. Then you need to make sure that you're doing that. So you need to make sure that it's, um, you've got a culture where everyone is doing the right thing. We see, and we and we saw this with the royal commissions, where you know a lot of the banks would have values around customer service and and respect, but they were rewarding be behaviours that were against that. So they were were rewarding sales uh, over values. So you, you, how you reward your employees will drive their behaviour. Um, if you don't call the behaviour, the, the behaviour will continue. So there's there's certain an element of that. But I think also when something's gone wrong, and I and I cite quite a few examples of this in the book of both doing it well and not doing it well, is that when a mistake's been made, to take full accountability for it, um, to do it quickly, to do it openly, and to apologise in a way that's real. And I talk about what you don't want to do is the plastic apology. So a plastic apology sounds a little bit like um, if anyone was offended if anyone found my, you know, remarks offensive, I apologise, as opposed to saying I apologise for being offensive. So, you know, there's a big difference between a real apology and a plastic apology. Because once you once you do lose trust, so one of the, is the Australian cricket team with the ball tampering incident and the, the, the cost of that to not only Cricket Australia with losing a sponsorship that was reportedly worth $50 million a year, but the actual cost to you know Steve Smith and Warner and and Bancroft the players involved was immense so there was um there's a huge amount of um 
whether it's physical dollar cost or whether it's brand reputation and um and trust it and, and and we know trust is harder to get back even even in our personal relationships we will know that it's easier to build trust from the start once you've lost trust in someone it's a lot harder to get back it, it, it you can get it back but it's a lot of work and in some cases you'll never get it back yeah it's one of the things which uh, i'm certainly noticing is that leaders are be it's sort of that frontline sort of middle manager level are becoming uh, having less and less trust in in the the organizational motives and, and and what they're really trying to achieve some of the research i did for the book that i found really interesting and it was research from deloitte and they looked actually at the australian financial um institution and one of the bits of research showed that um nearly 30 percent of of people surveyed so us would consider put it moving their banking to Qantas or virgin so we're we are literally saying that we would we would have greater trust putting our money in a company that doesn't even specialize in banking that's that's how much we've lost trust in the financial institution and i think it also goes to show why trust is important because you know every time i jump on a Qantas plane i am putting my life in their hands so it's not it's not such a big jump to put my savings with them yeah so you also write about the uh, the need to for employers to understand this idea of purpose and what what it means for people. Can you talk to a little bit more about purpose? Yeah, I think it's again this is sort of it comes back to I guess the expectations of employees where there has been a lot of talk um, around millennials that they want a greater purpose than just earning money when they go to work. So it's how you how you actually sort of find out what they're interested in and, you know, what they're trying to do and perhaps their greater life purpose. And when I say purpose, I'm not talking about, you know, this leaving legacy for world kind, but, you know, what's important to them and how can you tap into that? So, again, I think this is a, a generational change where, you know, 30 years ago we wouldn't be talking about our how employees want a great purpose in their work. Um, but they do. They want to, you know, they want to support companies that are doing good. They want to, whether that's working for them or buying their stuff, um, I went, you know, my daughter turned 18 at the end of last year and we you know, decided to buy her a gold necklace and we went into a few shops and the first two shops we went into, she asked the shop assistant where they sourced their gold from and where they sourced their diamonds from. And I, I was just astonished because I had no idea. Um, the first place was Tiffany's and they couldn't answer her. <laughs> um, and then the third place we went into, um, you know, the guy knew exactly where it was and talking about this thing. And I'm, but, but she was making, at 18, she was making um, purchase decisions based on um, the company's, you know, overall purpose and, you know, social responsibility besides just making money. Yeah, I think uh, I have to agree. There certainly is a, a shift in, in what's in, important to people. And I mean, we even see it in, in our business in that, uh, you know, diff different age brackets within the business are starting to bring things to our attention, you know, about recycling internally and, and things like that. So I mm. think it's certainly something that leaders need to be aware of. You speak yep. about this idea of the communication conundrum, which is the balance between sharing too much information or not sharing enough information. 
How, how do you suggest leaders sort of navigate their, their way through this conundrum? Yeah, it, it's a tricky one, hence why it's called a conundrum. Um, previously, the way leaders or companies used to communicate, it was very much a, a cascade down effect. And I, I liken it to the, the old champagne tower where it would go in the top and gradually, gradually, gradually it would come down. Um, but by the time it got down to the bottom, you, you certainly didn't have as much champagne in those glasses as the ones at the top. The reality is people want their communication faster and they want it to be more transparent. And with the, you know, the likes of social media, communication can travel a lot, a lot more. So what we're seeing a lot of, um, and again, we saw this, a couple of examples in the Royal Commission, um, Shane Elliott, CEO of ANZ and Andrew Thorburn, then CEO of NAB, they would do this a lot where they would um, produce pretty much, you know, on-the-go video, so nothing overly polished or anything, but, you know, video of them standing outside on Burke Street and announcing, you know, the six-term results. They would be announcing that to the public before they announced it internally. So in the past, it would be done internally, then it would be done cascade approach, and then it would be done externally, not necessarily the half-yearly results because they would always be external quite often but there's this real time period where they need to go to the public and they need to go internal and the way they're tending to do that is to go onto LinkedIn or Facebook which they're hitting everyone at the same time now I think there's there's a lot of benefits in that but one of the consequences is employees sort of go I would have thought we would have been told first but you know because because people are wanting the information so, you know, such a quick way. I mean, do, do you do the employees in the morning and external in the afternoon or do you just go both and bang? But it's, um, that's why it's a conundrum because um, some things still may deserve a little bit of a cascade down approach, but other times they've just, I think they've got to go out to everyone at the same time. What part is technology playing in all of this? I think what I was talking about with the impact of technology, it's, um, it's just making it it's like every, information can be shared so much quicker than it can before. So it's just, you know, with the advent of, you know, all the things, Twitter, Facebook, everything, um, inf- you know, we can share, I, I think it just happens quicker. I think it happens quicker and it reaches more people. So again, that feeds into, you know, it just, it just needs to be more transparent. And so, you know, technology can help with that. Um, but it just just sort of it's out there. It's spread, you know, when talk it spreads like wildfire. Technology and social media, especially, is is um, fueling that. So we just need to be aware of it. Yeah, I, I often wonder if if leaders have really made the the shift into understanding just how powerful technology is and just how much it's changed the opportunity for us to communicate with the people that we need to. Technology provides opportunity. I mean, I know there's a lot of CEOs and senior leaders that are, you know, doing live Facebook feeds and stuff like that. Um, A lot of leaders are still cautious of it or reluctant to use it. Yeah, absolutely. So you speak about the idea of the the rise of jargon and uh, one of the questions you Mm -hmm. ask ask, uh, in the book is, is it ever acceptable to use jargon? Yes, look, I think it absolutely uh, is acceptable to use jargon. There are times when it clearly is acceptable to use jargon and that is when everyone that you are speaking to and you are and you are fairly sure understands what it means. Um, 
but we know that's very rarely the case. So I do talk, I did some work with um, a company in Vietnam that they, they had these really cool values where the values were made up words. So they're actually like two words put together. Um, and so, for example, one of them was communiplete, communiplete, which was the combination of communicate and complete. One of the things that meant was you shouldn't leave anything unsaid. So don't only half communicate something. So they, but the way they, you know, they rolled out their values through lots of stories. They, I've never worked with a company that spoke so openly about their values. And what it meant is because everyone in that company clearly understood what it meant. Uh, everyone knew what they were talking about. Now, if they started to use those words externally, that's where it becomes the problem. But internally, it's actually quite an efficient and effective way to do it. And it sort of feels like, you know, we're part of a family, we're part of a tribe because we've got our own special language. Um, but unless everyone, everyone understands what you're talking about, then when you use jargon, you're potentially disconnecting and isolating people. Yeah, uh, yeah, you, you, you're spot on. I mean, I quite often find that when I start working with a new client and they'll start, uh, you know, we'll have discussions and they'll start using uh, some language and I have to sort of pull them up quite quickly and say, let's all back up a sec uh, just so I can build my own sort of knowledge base. What, what does that mean? <laughs> it's quite interesting. Yeah, so people will ask, what does that mean? But sometimes, you know, new employees start and they might ask once or twice, but then they just tend to stop asking because, you know, they don't want to look stupid or they don't want to um, seem like they don't know what they're talking about. So they actually stop asking, which makes us then feel like everyone knows what we're talking about, but very rarely they don't. Mm. And I suppose paired with jargon, you also speak about the... Uh, the addiction to acronyms and the unnecessary use of some of them. Yeah. Look, acronyms, again, acronyms can be a really efficient way to communicate um, if everyone knows what they mean. But the reality is with there's – there's a couple of problems with acronyms. One is for every acronym, there's a different meaning. So, you know, it's um, SME, for example subject matter expert or small to medium enterprise. So every time we're using acronyms, then it's, um, you know, there's, a, there's an opportunity for miscommunication. The, so that's one problem in itself. And what, what it always um, I find amusing is that companies go, yeah, yeah, we know we do that, but we've fixed the problem because we've got an acronym database. It was like, oh my, seriously, that, that does not fix the problem. Um, but the other, the other real issue with acronyms is that, um, you know, every time not only it has different meanings, but it's actually putting all the onus on the other person to communication. And, and so acronyms can be useful, but the problem is when we unnecessarily use them. And, and that is the real problem. And that's what I've seen an increase in. So, you know, we'll have acronyms like ATM and PIN, you know, they were new at one stage, but everyone uses them to, pro to prove the point that probably a lot of people don't know what that means. You see a lot of people say ATM machine and pin number. Um, and so, th but they're fine. It's just when we unnecessarily use them, we, we think there's this default that if we have to refer to something more than a couple of times, we reduce it to an acronym. So, I remember seeing something from a client and they were talking about um, employee skills, knowledge and experience. 
And then they decided to reduce that to SKE. Like that is a completely unnecessary use of an acronym. Just every time you're saying skills, knowledge and experience, either say it or write it out. We don't need to reduce everything to an acronym. So it's the unnecessary use of it, which um, becomes a problem and and just pointing that out and the consequences can be useful. So I really found it uh, useful uh, when you get sort of the second half of the book where you you detail some ways in which people can communicate to get real engagement. And you talk about the, the four ways to uh, help leaders communicate more effectively. Are you able to share what those uh, four ways are? Yeah, look, I think one of the first thing, and I talk about this, just uh, communicate concisely. But what I mean by that is um, when we communicate, we often focus on just what we want to communicate when really we should be putting our audience first. So understanding not only what do they need to hear or but how do they want to be communicated to so it's just not about because you're doing the communication not not in communicating in your style but taking in your audience the second thing i talk about is how you share stories now this is um this is my fifth book and my four previous books were all on storytelling um storytelling really only features in one chapter in this book but i'm pretty passionate about the power of sharing personal stories to get your business message across and what I see is it's it is one of the most engage one of the most engaging ways to get your business message across but not only get it across in a way people understand and remember but actually but actually connect with and connect with you a bit more uh, on a more human level so using personal stories is is one of the key skills um, I think also to how how you visualize information. So, and when I take visualize, I'm not talking about graphs on a PowerPoint, but how you actually, um, instead of just talking, talking, talking all the time, how you can actually make it a little bit more visual. So there's a little bit in the book about, you know, if you're going to use PowerPoint, which is sort of our default method, just do it right. Make sure you're doing that right. Um, and then just, just some different ways. If, you know, if your job involves any form of presentation, whether it's just to your team or whether it is on a stage, there's sort of a whole chapter on, you know, how you can, how you can do that with impact and just, just even some basic stuff about, you know, if you get nervous, some of the things you can do, you know, so not get nervous down to make your presentation more of a conversation than a presentation. Just, just some little tips and tricks that I know work um, and that I know others have used that work because public speaking is still one of the biggest fears people have. But if you're, if you've got a role, if you've got a leadership role and the more senior you become, I, I can guarantee you the more often you will need to speak in public. And I, I think speaking in public is one of those skills that if you get better at has such amazing benefits for your career because like it or not, when you are speaking in public, people are not judging you on your ability to speak. I mean, they are doing that. They're actually judging you on your ability to lead. So it's, um, I think it's it's the one skill that if you could invest in, that's what you want to do. You get better at public speaking and communicating. So I want to uh, explore a few, a few more key points around sort of uh, those, those four ways and uh, especially this point about getting your message right. Because I think quite often mm. we're not always sure about what the message is. Yeah, it's and it's one of those things. It's um, 
you know, this is, I'm talking here about getting your message right, but it, like in the written format, when you write a message, what I find is, um, and you know, and I'm guilty of this myself sometimes, sometimes we just write and it's almost like this venting thing. We just, or it's therapy. We just write in everything out. Um, and the reality is, does the person we're writing to need to know all this background information? Because just say, for example, you've written a 500-word email when it could be a 50-word email. A, you might actually even have to spend a little bit more time getting getting it right for a shorter. Um, I forget who the, who was the famous person who said, sorry, I um, yeah, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Is um, it, It's a quote incorrectly attributed to Mark Twain, but the, the reality is you might have to spend a little bit more time making sure your writing is more concise. But what it means is the person reading it, it's more efficient for the person reading it. So if you're writing an email that goes to a hundred of your staff or a thousand of your staff, wouldn't it be best for you to spend a bit more time making sure that is more concise if it saves a thousand people time in not only reading it, but understanding it. So again, it's coming back to being really mindful of your audience. You also speak about this idea of being present when you present in front of a room. And I know that uh, that that's like you mentioned before it's very challenging for some people are there any sort of insight any tips tricks you can give people can how they can center themselves and be more present yeah look I think it, there's a there's a couple of things one is um be really be really mindful of your audience when you walk into the room know know what's going on for them um you know, I, I remember once giving a presentation and, you know, I walked into the company and that morning they had just am- announced like massive job cuts. Now, you can't just ignore that. You can't, you know, and I just sort of went in, how's everyone going, how are you feeling, allowed them to speak a few minutes about it. I mean, this was just a small training workshop, you know, with about 15 people. But I just thought we need to cover that off. We need to, even if it's just them venting for a little bit, because there's no point going, me going straight into what I wanted to talk about. So it's being mindful of that. Um, it's also just being mindful, you know, if something happened while you're presenting that we need to, to stop for and be aware of. Um, and just, you know, it just, they want you to succeed. So be succeed and, and uh, you know, be there, be present and be there present for them. People have given up time to meet with you, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a team meeting, whether it's a presentation, they've actually given up their time. They want you to succeed. They want to get value out of it. Um, so just, just you know, do that. Come from a place of service and, and present to them. I'm noticing that more and more people are wanting to get better at telling stories and as part of their their, their leadership role and you, you have a whole uh, sort of header of, you know, the magic of story. Why is story such a powerful way of communicating with people? Uh, look, I'm so passionate about storytelling. I've been teaching leaders for almost about 15 years how to share personal stories to get their business message across. I It is one of the, the one of the key ways to communicate more effectively. Um, it, it takes skilling. It takes a bit of courage because sometimes, you, you know, if you're sharing stuff about you and it's, it's not about sharing your deepest, darkest fears and secrets, but you're sharing something about you. I think why I call it the magic of story, because there's so many benefits. Um, 
sharing a personal story to get your business message across is it not only helps you get your business message across in a way that people actually un- understand and, and remember and connect with, but each time you share a personal story, you're giving something of yourself, which what that does, it strengthens the relationship. So it can actually fast track trust in a relationship and it can strengthen it. So this is why storytelling is absolutely seen now as the key leadership skill, a key communication skill, and even in a sales perspective, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to build relationships in those roles and build trust and respect. And so that's why I, I call it, the, you know, the absolute magic of story because it does so many things. You had my attention immediately when you uh, said there's a problem with PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big believer. <laughs> I, I, think, I, think everyone, yeah, I think everyone knows that, but we still keep using it. Yeah, why is that? That does my heading. Uh, I, I often say PowerPoint was invented like about 30 years ago and um, you would think by now we would know how to use it properly. Uh, but it's just, it seriously is um, the systemic poor use of PowerPoint. So I often say it's not PowerPoint itself because, you know, I don't want to be hit by a lawsuit by Microsoft, but it, it is the systemic poor use of it. And I think what we keep following by example, so, you know, way too much text, bullet point after bullet point, cramming, you know, way too much information into our slides, thinking, you know, if it's all written up there and we say it, that, um, you know, it will help with understanding when actually all the research shows it distracts. But I think ultimately people, presenters use PowerPoint as an aid for them. So they use PowerPoint to help them when the only reason you should be using PowerPoint if it helps the audience. So um, when I do training in small groups, I tend to just use a whiteboard. But, you know, if it gets bigger groups, you know, just realistically you need PowerPoint so they can see it. But most of my PowerPoints are a big image and, you know, and a few words on, on the slide. So if we're going to use it, just just know how to use it properly and avoid all the common mistakes. Yeah, I'm also noticing uh, a trend towards the the use of visual models and uh, and such to demonstrate ideas and concepts. And you, you talk about the the importance of that. Uh, why why should more leaders be thinking of how they can turn their concepts into visual format? Yeah, look, one of the things, and when I say visuals, again, a lot of people think we'll turn it into a graph, and it's it's not really, but it, I mean, graphs can. You know, if you're showing growth, if you're showing growth over 10 years, like sometimes all you need is an arrow, like going up and down to visualize it. We don't need to know the exact details of the growth each year. Like, so a graph like that can really demonstrate it. In Infographics are becoming pretty popular at the moment, but, you know, they're, they're a lot of work. And unless you've got someone in your company that can pull them together, they can be quite um complicated what i find easier is if you spend a bit of time beforehand thinking about what you want to say you can turn that into a model you know whether it's just a simple venn diagram or you know whether it's a two by two matrix but i i do a lot of training um, on thought leadership and teaching people how to develop their ideas and one of the ways to do that really well is to turn it into a model i mean 
one of the things I cite in the book is the example of Simon Sinek's TED Talk and, you know, the Start With Why. I mean, there's a lot of thought into his ideas about Start With Why, but it's one of the most viewed TED Talks and it was him standing on stage with a flip chart drawing three circles on it. So, you know, it, it can be really powerful if you do your thinking through models and then then simply you know, draw out your model. That can be really powerful as opposed to a fancy, fancy PowerPoint presentation. You mentioned earlier about the the challenge people have uh, with public speaking. It's uh, certainly, I, I concur in my experience, it's something which a lot of people don't want to do and don't feel comfortable doing. Have you got any uh, tips and tricks that maybe people could start to think about to slowly build their confidence in public speaking? Yeah, look, I, I do a lot of work with people on this and I think one of, one of the things that helps, and I know this is probably easier said than done, is most people do fear public speaking. So we look at our peers around us and think they're really good and they're really confident but they were all feeling nervous beforehand. They were probably up on stage. They were the ones probably went to the toilet three times before, but we don't see that. All we see is them on stage and they look like they're really confident. Confident. And when people say me, tell me they're nervous and I see them and I go, no one, your nervousness doesn't come across. I mean, sometimes it does, but you need to understand that um, – what a lot of people do is they're, they're about to feel this nervousness, what, they, what they're labelling nerves, and then, then they go on this downward spiral of go, oh, my God, I knew I'd get nervous. I'm getting so nervous. I'm getting so nervous. I hate public speaking. I always get nervous. So this self-talk takes them on a downward spiral. If you flip that into what that actually – what those nerves are is adrenaline. That's what it is, and it's a physical reaction. So even just – the mindset of going, okay, I know this is, it's going to happen. It's going to, it happens to most people and it's going to happen to you. So knowing when it happens and just knowing it's a physical reaction. So what can you do? And, you know, in the book, I talk about simple things like breathing, you know, I just deep breathing, hold it for four, exhale for four, do all that stuff. Even getting physical. I mean, even just walking around and, you know, going to the, toilet and just jumping up and down whatever it takes it's a, it's getting the adrenaline out of your system now you never want to get the adrenaline completely out there's a little bit but if you're feeling overwhelmed by it figure out things that you can do to sort of get that physically out I, you know i talk about the power of um positive outcomes so visualizing positive outcomes there's a lot of stuff to um research that goes on that and and the other thing i think's really important but probably underestimated is choose clothes that you feel confident in so often we think oh it's a big talk and I should be wearing this all right just just wear clothes that you feel confident in now when I say that don't wear your pajamas or your track tracksuit pants like I'm not talking about like I'm not talking about relaxed but feel wear clothes that make you feel really good because this is all about confidence. And I mean, you know, of course there's bare minimum stuff, but get very well prepared, practice, practice, practice. But if you're feeling confident and if you know you've got some techniques that can help you overcome those initial nerves, you know, the more you do that, the easier it will become and it will, it will become easier. I was drawn to this idea of yours in the, in chapter eight about owning your genius. I'd like to explore that a bit. 
Yeah, look, I love the concept of um, the Romans talk about genius as in you're not a genius, but you have a genius inside you. Like this concept that, that we're all good at something. Um, and it's, I'm not talking about, you know, Einstein being a genius or anything, but, but you've good at, you're good at something. You, you know stuff, and especially if you're speaking or if you're leading, you have, you have experience, you have knowledge, you have insights that could be of value to people. And the sooner you realise that and just own it, then the more easier it will be for you to go out and share that genius. So I have a lot of people who are asked to speak and don't put their hand up and sort of go, oh, no, you know, I, I'm, real, I'm not an expert on this or, or don't put their hand up for opportunities. I, sadly, I see that women do this more than men. Um, where they feel reluctant, uh, you know, to put their hand up for speaking opportunities. But And what I find is the sooner you realise, you know, look, I don't have to be the smartest person in the world, but I've got some experiences and some value and some stories I could share that other people might find valuable. The sooner you own that, and I call it genius, I literally just call it own your genius, um, the more readily you'll, you'll take those opportunities to share it. You're right that uh, when we're communicating, we should use real words. Well, yes. What, what are real words? Oh, I think it's uh, it's real words to me is the opposite of jargon and acronyms. Um, so, you know, we, we'll say we we can easily hide behind jargon, um, and we we see this. We see the, we either do it deliberately or or, or subconsciously. And for example, when um, you see this often when CEOs and instead of job losses, they're going to say, um, you know, downsizing or right-sizing. Uh, about two weeks before I went to print, something happened with General Motors and I was luckily able to insert a paragraph or two on this where um, they, in America, they they announced a change that was going to result in, I think, about 14,000 job losses across America and Canada and they referred to it as reallocating reallocating like the, the, the whole term job loss was not used so I think people see through that and I think um, and again because we're in this world of low trust that we need to use real words um, and even when we're not trying to hide something we'll we use safe words so we'll say things like anxious as opposed to saying I was really scared and can you sort of see how really scared, like scared is a real word to me, where anxious is a, a safe word. So it's it's just being prepared to just use real words that people connect and engage with. You also speak about this idea that leaders should deal with what's real. Yeah, this is um, probably something I, I touched on a little bit before about when something goes wrong. So when something goes wrong that you actually um, deal with it and you deal with it openly and transparently, you know, with a real apology, not not a plastic apology. We, we saw a great example of this recently when the AFL came out um, with an, an apology to Adam Goods and it was, and it's what I would call is, is dealing with what's real, that, that they knew this was an issue. They came out, 
but the wording in that apology was, you know, um, really strong. There was no half-baked apology. It was literally saying that we, you know, unreservedly apologised, that we did not do enough, we did not stand with him, um, and then went on to outline what they're actually going to do about it. So it's a it's a really open, transparent, strong apology followed by action. Now, now I know there'll be critics that say they did too little too late, um, but I think it was a great example of of dealing with what's real Hmm. and i suppose following on from that idea of what's real in in chapter 12 you talk about knowing what's real for others and i think that that's uh that's almost a challenge for people to really try to step into the shoes of the people around them How, how can how can leaders get a better sense about what's real for others yeah, look, I had I had a bit of um, fun writing this last chapter because um, I got a, I got an opportunity to speak to some people around the world that um, you know people had told me about and led me to that really demonstrated this and and so many um, just cool insights they had. And it really came down to listening, to really um, showing empathy and listening and finding out what was important for others. You know, we, we spoke briefly before about um, employees, you know, want a greater purpose. Well, you need, you need to find out what's important to them. So just, um, you know, just down to actually scheduling time in your diary to be genuinely out listening to um, your employees. I, I remember speaking to one one gentleman and he was the CEO of a company and they were going through, or he was one of the major senior execs and they were going through made like really hard change where there was job losses. And um, he kept saying that every day I just wanted to like work from home because the environment was so bad, but he goes, but I knew they needed me more than ever. So he would force himself to go in and to actually just be on the floor speaking to his team because they, you know, he knew what they were going through and he knew what he had to be there for. So I, yeah, I did, I did like writing that, that chapter because that was um, a lot of stories and examples from how other people did that, which I thought was, um, which was fun to hear. Are there any books or people that uh, inspire you? Um, look, I, I read, I don't, when I say I read a lot of books, I read a lot of books, but I'm probably like most people, I don't finish a lot of business books. Um, <laughs> but what I do, um, I think if I had to choose one, I, I absolutely love the work of Brene Brown. Um, the fact that she, uh, her books are all about vulnerability to me, which is what storytelling's about. Um, and uh, she, you know, in her TED talk, she shares the first time she was asked to speak, and they said they're going to they're going to introduce her as a storyteller, and she almost like nearly vomited, going, "I'm not a storyteller, I'm a scientist." Um, but she has this really cool thing where she thinks um, stories. She says stories are data with soul, which I love, um, and I just love her pure vulnerability of sharing stories in her books um, and the, how she just keeps um, improving her IP and every book she comes out with is just building on, on others. So I do love the work of Brene Brown. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, uh, where should they go? Uh, a couple of places of the websites is probably the easiest. So GabrielleDolan.com. If 
they're interested in storytelling at all, I have a seven-day uh, storytelling starter kit. So that's free. So, you know, get on. And you, you get an email from me once a day for seven days and it just really will help you start thinking about storytelling. And, um, of course, on the website you can – or you can purchase the books, but you can purchase books from anywhere. And if you're interested in either – me doing keynote speaking or training your leaders, then you can go all through the website. But there's a there's a lot of a lot of free stuff in there. There's a lot of free white papers and a lot of free resources and videos that if you're interested in um, storytelling and authentic leadership and real communication that you might find of value. Any last words on leadership and real communication? Any last words? You know, I think I think I might have to almost point to the subtitle of my book which took if you've ever and you've written a book julian i know is like one of the hardest things is to come up with the title and subtitle because it's got to be really clear it's got to, and and this one by far was the hardest one to come up with the subtitle that kept changing and and it was interesting about two years ago i thought at one stage, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be my big legacy book and it's going to be called Be You and Lead True. Um, and then after months of trying to come up with a subtitle, I thought, oh my goodness, this is actually the subtitle for this book. It, it's, it's what this book really is about. It's it's just be you, just simply be you. There's... um. I've got a mug in my office with a thing on it, um, you know, the quote from Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everybody else is taken. So that that would be my thing. Be yourself, everyone else is taken and be you and, and lead true to that because, um, you know, being someone else and leading in a different way, in a leading in a way that pe- you think people expect you to lead is exhausting and unsustainable and it's not what your employees are looking for. They're looking for you to be you and to lead true. Well, on, on that note, Gabrielle, thank you so much for being a guest on the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Uh, all the best. Thanks, Julian. Thanks a lot. Well, that wraps up episode 76 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another author interview episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to interview or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site, leave us a review. Really does help us build awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great interview for you where I chat with Yu Dan Shi, author of Come Alive, Living a Life with More Meaning and Joy. It's another great author interview episode. Until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening.